Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. This message is in the category of a hard saying who can hear it. You know what I'm talking about? You know, one time Jesus preached a sermon and uh, many of his followers said that this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And they took off. They left. They abandoned him because he spoke some very straight testing truths. Uh, this is a message in this category. So expect to hear things that might be quite serious. And uh, that's not why we made this. We don't want to just talk about things to startle people. But uh, we're living in very serious times and very serious things are happening. And it requires very serious warnings to be given. And uh, how we react and respond to the warning and to the message is really our choice. But as far as the messenger is concerned, our duty is to discharge the message. And then we leave it with people to choose whether to take it or leave it. Each one will answer to God for himself. Uh, and so I want you to pay careful attention. It's, uh, it's fairly simple. It's not that hard to understand. But it's fairly serious, as you shall see. It's one of the more serious messages that I give. And I always give this with mixed feelings, and you'll see why. Uh, because it's something that's very close to my heart, and I know it'll be very close to many hearts here, and maybe many hearts listening as well. So we need an added portion of God's Spirit. So I want to pray one more time, and we'll get straight into it. So if you can join me, please. Loving eternal Father in heaven, how thankful we are that we can come once again into thy presence to plead and ask for thy spirit to give us understanding. Lord, we pray as David prayed, open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Please give us a quick mind, quickened by thy spirit, and please be with me as I speak. May thy spirit speak words to thy people and open to us, Lord, thy word. And help us to understand the seriousness of the times in which we are living. And that we might respond according to thy will is our prayer now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in uh, looking at what's happening today, we find that there is a lot of debate. And a lot of discussion and a lot of issues uh, regarding certain topics that some people feel are irrelevant, a distraction, and a deception of the devil. When you bring up certain topics, particularly on the father and the son, and the truth of their relationship. Have you heard that from some people? Yeah. And people say, this, is, this, event, this information is not relevant for the last days. This is not an issue. You people are making an issue out of nothing. And I've heard that a number of times, and it surprised me, because we know that the issue in the last days is worship. We were here last night. How many were not here or... We're not at the meeting last night. You did not attend or, or go online last night. Okay, a few. So most of everyone else, I would assume, uh, heard last night. And we, we looked uh, at the issue last night being worship, the central issue of conflict in the last days. But uh, God has not left us in the dark regarding this. He has given us in a number of places prophecies. He has given us indications as to what will happen and when it will happen. And today we're going to look at a very fearful prophecy that tells us that what is happening today and all this agitation, all this debate and all this conflict is not a chance, it's not a distraction, it's not a side issue, it's actually the very heart of the matter. 
as we shall see from the scriptures. So this is where this title comes from, of course, uh, the biblical 9-11. You all know very well the event that shook uh, not only your country, but the whole world and had effect was 9-11. You remember that? Now, this study is not about 9-11 and who did what and who didn't what and all that stuff. We're not going to go into that. But the important point of 9-11 is this. The world was never the same after. Isn't that right? It started here. America was never the same after. It was one event that happened that changed the world forever. Wars have started and are still going on to this point. Things have happened as a result of that one event. And all we can think about, or all we can say is, the days before 9-11. We can just remember them. But now we're living in a different reality. There is also in the scriptures an event just like that after which the world will never be the same. An event that cannot be reversed, an event that we cannot go back to after it happens. Once it happens, that's it. And uh, you know what that event is? It's brought out in Revelation 7. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, 2, 3. And here's what this event is all about. And th this is the power. I want us to keep that in mind as we go along. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. That's the sealing. And of course, it says, hurt not the earth until we have sealed, meaning once the sealing is finished, there will be a release of these winds and there will be destruction. And we refer to this event as the close of human probation. Isn't that right? That's the event that's, uh, in a sense, equivalent to the 9-11. An event, once it happens, that's it for everyone. You can't go back. You can't change it. You can't undo it. Whatever things are like when probation closes, that's how they stay. You either have the seal of God or you have the mark of the beast. We talked a little bit about the mark of the beast yesterday. We'll talk a little bit now about this event and the significance of this event in the time we're living in. So important is this event that God wants his church to be ready for this close of probation. We don't want to come up to this event and be found on the wrong side, do we? And so that's why God gave in the scriptures, in another place, more information about this significant event. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, we find a parallel to this very same event. John talked about it in Revelation 7. Ezekiel 9 is the equivalent. And this is what it says. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the forehead. Same place, right? Of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly, old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. You see the parallels? A marking in the forehead followed by destruction. Isn't that right? And that includes everyone. 
It's the same event, a very significant event. Different words, different language, but the same thought, the same uh, thing is being portrayed really in this passage. The mark that is on the forehead. We saw that uh, it's the 144,000 who have the Father's name written in there. For that's the mark that we're talking about here. That's the seal of God signified by keeping the day that this God has blessed and sanctified. Isn't that right? And so uh, this prophecy is so fearful. This event is so fearful. We need to understand what is the condition of God's people and God's church in the last days. And so important is this that uh, even the servant of the Lord comments on this. Manuscript releases, volume 18, page 236. It says, study the ninth chapter of Ezekiel. Isn't that what we just read? Ezekiel 9. Study the ninth chapter of Ezekiel. These words will be literally fulfilled, yet the time is passing and the people are asleep. Which people? Who's she writing to? More, more specific. Seventh-day Adventists, right? That's us. That's you're right. It's Seventh-day Adventists. They refuse to, and the people are asleep, you know, the, how many virgins of the five, uh, the ten virgins? All slept, okay? That's good. Everyone knows. That's us, huh? All asleep. They refuse to humble their souls to be and to be converted. Not a great while longer will the Lord bear with the people who have had such great and important truths revealed to them, but who refuse to bring these truths into their individual experience. Here's what the truth really is like. Truth that is not brought into our individual experience is not really truth as far as we're concerned. But the key point here that we want to look at is studying this ninth chapter of Ezekiel. Because in Ezekiel 9, it talks about Israel. And if the servant of the Lord is telling us to study it, in other words, this prophecy is dealing with which group of people? The church. Isn't that right? Which church? Seventh-day Adventist church. You know, Seventh-day Adventist church is in prophecy. You know that. So I want to study that. So the prophecy of Ezekiel 9 that we're told to study actually begins in chapter 8. <clears throat> so if you have your Bibles, oh, we have the text here. If you have your Bibles, you want to follow. This is what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be spending some time in Ezekiel chapter 8 because that's where the prophecy begins. That's where the vision begins. And then when we study chapter 8, it'll be so simple to understand chapter 9. All we'll have to do is just read through it and, and we'll need no comments. It'll be as plain as day. So that's what we're told to do, and this is what we'll do, Ezekiel 8 and 9. Okay, you have your Bibles? You're ready? So we're going, through, going to go through a chapter. We're going to have an exposition study. You know, we're going to have an expository type study. And we'll see what we can learn about this fearful prophecy. Because remember, the timing of this prophecy is just before the close of probation. That's really what we're looking at. So in other words, in this vision, in this prophecy, God is giving us a picture of what his church, which church? What this church looks like just before the destruction comes. That's the timing. And so when we have that in mind, we will actually appreciate what the scriptures tell us in this uh, in this chapter. Okay, so let's start. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in mine house, and the elders of Judah sat before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell there upon me. Ezekiel, where is he? Anyone know? 
He's in Isaustrius with the verses, but where, where is that? Historically, he is in captivity in Babylon. He is with the captives in Babylon. He's visited there in his house. The elders of Judah come, and he goes into vision. Verse 2, Then I beheld, and lo, a likeness as the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his loins, even downward, fire, and from his loins, even upward, as the appearance of brightness, as the color of Amber, he sees someone that he describes. Who is he seeing? He's seeing Christ, right? Same description as Revelation. Fire. Fire is this fiery-looking being. Jesus in Revelation uh, is clothed in the sun. Is, is the, the, John says that his face was the brightness of the sun. So he sees Christ. Christ is the one who gives this vision. Now, we're going to see that in a minute, but that's, that's not a very major point. Uh, let's see what happens as he goes on. Verse 3. And he put forth the form of an hand and took me by a lock of mine head. Okay? He's in vision, right? He's just describing what's happening. And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem. I want us to stop here for a minute. Who did Ezekiel say that he saw? Christ. He saw this likeness of a man. And then he says, he took his hand, put forth his hand, and he took me up. And then he says, the Spirit lifted me up. Did you catch that? So the Lord is that Spirit. That's just on the side here. That's not, we've just finished talking about that. And so he takes him in this vision. Uh, now this is a vision, keep in mind. So Ezekiel is taken up in this vision, and he's carried all the way back to Jerusalem, to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north. So he's carried to where the worship takes place at the sanctuary, and he's looking at this gate at the north, and then he says, Where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to jealousy? To jealousy. So you can just picture the scene. Here's Ezekiel carried hundreds, thousands of miles across to Jerusalem in this vision, to the temple, to the sanctuary, to the inner gate on the north, and he sees something. What does he see? He sees an image that he says, the image, the seat of the image of jealousy, which provoketh to, to jealousy. What does that mean? What provokes to jealousy? The scripture tells us. Exodus 34, 14, God says to his people, Thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. There's another verse, Deuteronomy 32, 21. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So very simply, false gods provoke God to jealousy. So Ezekiel is seeing at the north gate in the sanctuary an image of a false god that is provoking God to Jealousy. Make sense? Not that hard. It's very simple. We'll just go through it step by step and we'll have, hopefully, a picture in the last days. Now remember, what Ezekiel is seeing in Jerusalem is not really what is taking place there literally. He's seeing it in a vision. And what he is seeing is a picture, not of Jerusalem then and there, but a picture of the church. When? Just before the close of? 
Probation. Don't ever forget that point. That's our reference point. That's so important because sometimes we get caught up in the details. And, oh, this is back then, these bad people. This is a picture of the church today. We don't want to miss that point. So let's keep going. See what happens. And behold, verse 4, and behold, back in Ezekiel 8, the glory of the God of Israel was there according to the vision that I saw in the plain. That's in chapter 1. Verse 5, then said he unto me, son of man, who's speaking to him? Christ. So Christ takes Ezekiel on this vision, and Ezekiel sees, and he notes what he sees, and then Christ tells him, speaks to him, and makes sure that he notes certain things. He tells him, son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. Now he noted that already, didn't he? But Christ says, look, Ezekiel, look, look that way. I don't want you to miss this. This is important information. And through Ezekiel and through Ezekiel's eyes, we're actually getting a picture of how things are today. So he sees this image northward at the altar. What takes place on the altar? Sacrifice. Who's in charge of sacrifices? The priests. So in the area where the priests have jurisdiction, he sees an image of a false god. And where does he see it? At the very end there? It's where? In the entry. So as the worshipers, as the people would come to worship, to offer up sacrifices and offerings, as they come right at the door, there is this image of a false god. In the area where the priests, the leaders, the spiritual leaders, are in charge. Isn't that right? And Jesus tells Ezekiel, Ezekiel, look, just look at that. That's the picture we're seeing here. What do the sacrifices represent? Christ, isn't it right? He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the priests, the leaders of the people, are perverting that which represents the true Son of God. And in its place, there is this false image, this false God that provokes to Jealousy. In other words, there is a measure of responsibility here on those that are in charge of that area. But let's keep going and see what else. The scripture says, Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 81, 9. There shall no strange God be in thee, neither shall thou worship any strange God. Plain instruction that Ezekiel now sees in Jerusalem is not being followed at all. Not only there, but many other places. Jeremiah 2, 11. God asks, inquires this interesting question. He says, Hath the nation changed their gods, which are yet not no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. What was, that was what was happening right there in that vision. You know, God's asking a question. He says, look at the Babylonians, for example. Do they change their gods? Look at the Assyrians. Do they change their gods? They don't. They're consistent, and their gods are not even gods. But my people, who are supposed to be worshiping the true God have abandoned me and served other gods. You see the point here? So in other words, God is saying, the pagans are more consistent in their worship than my own people. And Ezekiel is seeing in graphic detail a picture of that taking place right then in the sanctuary. Where the worship of God is to take place. He sees this false image, this false God. But anyway, let's keep going. There's more to the story. Verse 6. Back in Ezekiel. He said furthermore unto me. This is Christ, right? 
So son of man, Ezekiel, seest thou what they do? Christ really doesn't want Ezekiel to miss what's happening. Did you see that, Ezekiel? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. This was not a happy vision for Ezekiel. But notice the purpose of all this false worship is to drive Christ from his sanctuary. Now keep that in mind because we were going to, we don't want to forget what Ezekiel is seeing is a picture of the church in the last days. It's giving us a picture of what will happen or what is happening. And you're going to decide which one is the right one. Verse 7. And he brought me. So now we're going to worse abominations. Isn't that right? So stage 2. He brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the, in the wall. Interesting. We just read about a breach, right? A breach or a gap. Now remember in the sanctuary, how many doors were there? One door, and once time we showed this picture and people thought there were three doors. It's, it's one entrance, it's the idea there. It's just, they had to hold it up, you know? So there's one door and the door is symbolical of who? Of Christ, Jesus said, I am the door. There was only one way into the sanctuary, right? There was no other way. There was no breach, no, no one could tunnel, jump over or do anything of the sort. Why? Because it was symbolical that Jesus is the only way. As he said, we know in John 10, 9, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. But now God, Christ, shows Ezekiel as he's looking at the door, he notices something in the wall. What does he notice? A hole in the wall or a breach. Now let's see what else. Something is wrong, in other words, obviously. Let's see what else takes place. Verse 8, then said he unto me, son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a, a door. Now that's interesting. Ezekiel now participates in this vision. He sees a hole, Christ tells him, okay, now start digging. So he starts digging and the hole gets bigger and bigger and wider. And he realizes all of a sudden there is a a door. In other words, this is a secret hidden door. Isn't that right? It's hidden. It's not apparent. It's not obvious. You have to dig. And this door is another entrance, right? An alternate entrance. Now, Jesus is the way because he is the only mediator, his only door. So now here we see in the sanctuary another door, another entrance, or another mediator is present. But it is hidden. It is secret. It needs uncovering. God uses Ezekiel to uncover that. Are you with me so far? We're just looking at what the words mean. It's not rocket science. Verse 9, he said unto me, Go in and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. So behind this secret hidden door, Ezekiel sees this false worship. 
taking place. Every form of creeping thing, abominable beast, all these idols pictured around the world. What a scene it must have been for Ezekiel. As he sees God's people, and of course we know who is in charge in the sanctuary, the spiritual leaders involved in this secret door business, behind the secret door. He sees all this. Now, remember, this is a picture of what's happening today. I'm going to keep reminding you because we don't want to forget. And someone said, what does that mean? We have pictures on the church, you know, on the church hall? No, the pictures are representative. They're symbols. Idolatry does not require us to have pictures and images. Idolatry begins where? In the heart, in the mind. And that's what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 14, 3, uh, God says to him, Son of man, these men have set up their idols where? In their hearts. And put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? What's that mean? Inquiring of God, requesting, praying. Idolatry or idols, things that go in the place where God does interrupt our communion and worship with God. And idolatry, and we read that earlier, uh, we're told in the spirit of prophecy that it's not just idols of wood and stone, but it tells us further what it really is. Uh, Testaments volume 5, notice what it says here. Are we worshippers of Jehovah or of Baal, of the living God or of idols? No outward shrine may be visible. There may be no image for the eye to rest upon, yet we may be practicing idolatry. Well, how is that? It is as easy to make an idol of cherished ideas or objects as to fashion gods of wood or stone. Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false god as were the servants of Baal. Are we worshipping the true God as he is revealed in his word, in Christ, in nature? Or are we adoring some philosophical idol enshrined in his place? Notice the, the contrast here. Either the true God or a philosophical idol. You know what's a philosophical idol? It's up here. Some understanding of God that is philosophical, that does away with the true God. Now it says here, the true God. Who's that referring to? The Father, as he is revealed in his word, in Christ, and in nature. That makes sense, doesn't it? We already found that. So that's the conflict here. So Ezekiel is seeing in pictures... Something that will take place in the last days in the church. Let's keep going. Verse 11, and there stood before them. Now he's inside behind the secret door, right? That's where we left him. And he, saw, he sees all these images, all these pictures. And there stood behind, uh, before them 70 men of the ancients. Where are buzz? In the sound. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel, and in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. That's worship. Carried out by the ancients. Who are the ancients? The elders. The spiritual leaders. So here we see secret, hidden worship carried out by the leaders behind this door of an alternate mediator or intercessor another door wasn't that right now that's important to keep in mind because we'll see if that really is the case today or not and when it says a thick cloud of incense went up what does that represent prayer, prayer. 
praying to this false God or gods, all these representations that are there. And this is done in the secret. Notice verse 12. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chamber, chambers of his imagery, for they say, the Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. So I want us to keep something in mind here. According to this vision, in the church, in the last days, there will be secretly, underhandedly, false worship carried out by the leaders in the church. Yes or no? That's what it says. Just before the close of probation. And God, Christ took Ezekiel on a special vision to show him these things for our benefit today. And he tells Ezekiel, I don't want you to miss it. Make sure you see this and this and write it down so my people in 2012 can read and understand what's taking place. That's written for us right now. What else has takes place? Verse 13, he said also unto me, turn thee yet again and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. So Christ says to Ezekiel, we're not finished, Ezekiel. It gets worse. Verse 14, then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Now we want to just understand what that verse says, because it says a lot. We're going to look at the women weeping for Tammuz. But if you look at the margin, you will find it in the margin for weeping. They weren't crying like, you know, like we understand crying. The margin actually says, in a lewd and idolatrous manner. These were the immoral practices of pagan worship that involved the ladies. Are you with me? No, they weren't just sitting there crying. That's part of the ritual of worship to this false god was that they would do so in a lewd and an idolatrous manner. They would go a whoring, in other words. But before we get there, I want us to notice something. Ezekiel, now this is the third stage that Christ is showing him. Isn't that right? First off, what did he see? The image of jealousy at the north gate. Next thing was what? That secret door behind which there were all these portrayed images. Now Christ takes him back out again to the same place where he started. But this time, he doesn't only see the image, but now he sees what? Women weeping for Tammuz. You see, there is a development. There is a progression. One thing leads to another. These women are out at the gate. Now, what does a woman represent? A church. So these women are the church. In other words, they're actually the laity of the church. Now, this worship, this, this particular event that is taking place is out in the open. It's at the gate. It's no longer secret. You know what that means? The false worship that is brought in secretly and underhandedly by the leaders now spills over and begins to affect the rest of the church to the point that the women are now publicly and openly involved in this false worship. You with me? Now, what's this false worship all about? What's, uh, what's that represent? In Judges 2.17, we're told the following, and yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a whoring after other gods. That's spiritual adultery. It's worshiping other gods. That's what the scriptures refer to it as. And they bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way, which their fathers walked in. 
walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. Remember, this is a picture of the, which one? In the last days, just before the close of probation. It tells us of a progression of an apostasy that takes place one step at a time. So not only now the leaders, but the members are found a-whoring, worshipping other gods. And the god that is worshipped here is referred to as Tammuz. They were weeping for Tammuz. We'll see a little bit more about Tammuz in a minute. But notice that all these events are taking place where? At the north gate. Why at the north gate? Everything has a meaning here. Remember, who is behind all this false worship? It is Satan at the north gate. You don't think what the north, what's the north gate? Remember what Satan said in Isaiah 14? He says, I will exalt my throne. I will do all these things. And at the end there, it says, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. In other words, that's where God was sitting. Isn't that right? God was sitting in the sides of the north. He says, verse 14, I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Lucifer wanted to put his throne where God's throne was. That happened to be in the sides of the north, in the holy mountain. And God gave us a picture of that. God gave us a pattern of that when he gave the sanctuary to Moses. I'm going to explore that just a little because it will give us a clearer picture of what Lucifer is really trying to do. And all of that is why this is taking place at the north gate. When Moses built the sanctuary, God told him he had to make it according to the pattern. You remember? It was a pattern. And there were all the different items of furniture had meaning, had a symbol. They represented something. We will look at, uh, at one of them and see what it, uh, where it was located because it's of importance to us. Exodus 26.35, And thou shalt set the table without the veil, and the candlestick over against the table, on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and thou shalt put the table on the north side. Here's an item of furniture that was placed on the north side, and it was the table. Remember what it was called? Table of showbread. So this table of showbread in the sanctuary was placed on the north side. And of course, you know what uh, else is involved in that table. Let's, uh, that's just a picture of it. Here's another illustration. Oh, there you go. It's the north. Okay, so here is the, that's actually set out properly. This is not to scale, by the way, but here is on the north side, this table of showbread. Now, what else was instructed, was Moses instructed to do? Exodus 25, 23 to 25. Thou shalt also make a table of shittim wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, and make thereto a crown of Gold around the table, round about. And thou shalt make unto it a border of an hand breadth round about, and thou shalt make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. So you had this table that had a crown, and then there was a little bit of a gap, space, and then there was a, another crown. It was a hand breadth. So this is a table on the sides of the north that has a double crown. Isn't that right? So if we put that in our diagram, okay, it has a double crown. I just, I like visual things because it helps us remember. Okay, 
Now what else happened on that table? Leviticus 24, 5 and 6. And thou shalt take fine flour and bake 12 cakes thereof. Two tenths deal shall be in one cake and thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon the pure table before the Lord. So on the table of showbread, they had two stacks of bread. Six in each stack, right? Now all these things symbolize something. What did they symbolize? First of all, what's the bread represent? Remember what Jesus said? John 6, 6 uh, 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live for ever. And Jesus also said, I and my father are, are one. So the bread is a symbol of Christ. And since Christ is an express image of the father, it's also a symbol of the father. Bread is... What sustains life? That's the symbol here. What keeps you alive? David, one day when he was with his army uh, and they were running and they were hungry, they were stranded, they ate the bread, otherwise they were going to die. Sustaining life. Christ is the life sustainer. So the bread of the, the show bread represents Christ. It also represents the Father. So we have these two stacks of bread. Why did God ask Moses to put them in two piles? Is also important. There is a reason. Because on the... Now let's put all this together. On the sides of the north where Satan wanted to sit is where God's throne is. And on God's throne, there are how many occupants? Two. The father and the son. And so God told Moses, make this table, put it on the north side. Make a double crown for it and put on it two piles of bread, six each. Could he have put three? You know, could God have said put it in three piles equal each? Yeah, easy. He could have said just one, put all 12 up on top of each other. He didn't put it in one, he didn't put it in three or four. He said put two. Why? Because that's a symbol of the father and the son. The same bread, same nature. There are many symbols here. So uh, Jesus says that, Revelation 3, 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and I'm set down with my father in his throne. So we see a picture of that in the sanctuary. That's why the devil wanted to sit in the sides of the north. He says, I want to sit there as well. And it was there that uh, the father and the son would counsel together and the devil, he wasn't the devil then, Lucifer, was not allowed. Because as we heard earlier, the only being in all the universe who was allowed into the councils of God was the Son. That table of showbread has two, room for two and no more. Occupants of the throne. Here's the spirit of prophecy as well. How many occupants are on the throne? And it's just because people, you know, have doubts when you talk about that. They say, no, 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 no. So we want to look at a fair amount of evidence. The king of the universe summoned uh, patriarchs and prophets. King of the universe summoned the heavenly host before him, that in their presence he might set forth the true position of his son and show the relation he sustained to all created beings. The son of God shared the father's throne and the glory of the eternal self-existent one encircled both. Okay, that's, that's pretty plain. And so... This table of showbread is a symbol of the throne of God where the Father and the Son sit. And how many loaves were there? Six. 
And that's where the devil wanted to sit as well, which would give us a very serious problem. Isn't that right? Didn't the devil say, I will put my throne where God sits? So if we were to represent the devil's throne where God sits, this is what we would end up with. Isn't that right? Now that, that might look funny, but it's very serious. The devil's plan is to do this in people's minds. You know that? That's what we're dealing with here. That's why it's not a strange thing that the man of sin has a number 666. It's the false worship. In other words, the true has been perverted. There are true elements of worship with the man of sin, but they are perverted to accommodate the error. So we see that very interesting problem that would develop in the sanctuary. Same story. If we were to put a throne there for the devil, which is where he wanted to sit, it would totally destroy the picture of a perverted system of worship. And the question is, has the devil been successful in doing this in people's minds? He never could make, do this in, in, in heaven. He tried by force and he failed, right? Today he is doing that in people's minds. It's amazing in, people, in people's minds when in the space where you have some space for God, they have three slots in their mind. Isn't that right? A philosophical idol enshrined in the mind. That's what we're warned about. Anyway, let's go on. Here's another uh, Another statement about the occupants of the throne. It says, I saw a throne, and on it sat the Father and the, and the Son. Okay, we read that earlier, and we won't, we won't go to all the length of reading that. Uh, but this is the vision where Christ, uh, this is at the end of uh, the 2300 days, where the Father goes into the most holy place, and then followed by Christ. And then when Christ left, it says there, Satan appeared where? By the throne, trying to carry on the work of God. I saw this the people. I saw them look up to the throne and pray, Father, give us thy spirit. Satan would then breathe upon them an unholy influence in which there was light and power, but no love, joy, and peace. Now, this vision is very significant for a number of reasons. It tells us that the throne has only two. And then it tells us that Satan is trying to occupy a position in order to deceive people by the throne. Now, the interesting thing in this passage, we didn't read the first part. Maybe we should. Uh, let's just quickly read that. I kind of did it backwards. But anyway, those who rose up with Jesus would send up their faith to him in the holiest and pray, my father, give us thy spirit. Then Jesus would breathe upon them the Holy Ghost. In that breath was light, power, much love, joy, and peace. So they pray for the spirit. And what are the words that they use? My father, give us thy Spirit, and they receive the Holy Spirit, which is from Christ, it's the breath. And then we see this other group where when Satan appears by the throne, they also pray. And what do they say? Father, give us thy spirit. It's the same prayer. And if you compare in different places, it's really the same prayer. They say the same thing, but they get a different answer. And the question is this what made the difference? Because this time they prayed, who answered? Satan. Satan answered. Now, is that possible? You just think about that for me. Is it possible to pray to God and have Satan answer? That's what these people were thinking. What made the difference? You could say the same words, and one person, God would answer, and the next person, Satan would answer. You know what made the difference? 
their understanding of who they were praying to, where they were praying, where their prayers were ascending in the sanctuary. They did not keep their eyes on the Son of God. And because of that, someone took his place and assumed to answer their prayer. Now, that's a very serious warning. And we'll see if that has any relevance for us now. Now, Ezekiel's vision was not dealing with this time period. So I don't want you to misunderstand me, but we're just talking at a principle that comes out in this particular vision. So these women, we said, were weeping for Tammuz, right? Who was Tammuz? Okay, we did that last night. Tammuz was the son of Semiramis and uh, him and uh, Nimrod. Nimrod wasn't really his father, was he? But him and Nimrod and Semiramis were worshipped as the first trinity. You see, Tammuz was the son of the sun god. That's what was said, you remember? He was a false son of God. A counterfeit son of God. He was a reincarnation, supposedly. And so Ezekiel is seeing in pictures that God's people are going to worship Tammuz. They are worshiping another son of God, not the real one. And we saw that uh, in history. We saw that the first trinity was in Babylon, and we looked at that last night, all the different trinities and all the different nations. That's the start. It began with Tammuz. Tammuz made up the number three. Now let's keep going and see what else takes place. Then said he unto me, <clears throat> son of, uh, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. Well, it gets worse. What, how, what worse could there be? The leaders and the people openly, now publicly, in the sanctuary, at the gate, no shame, worship to this false god. Open false worship. And what's involved here is the Moors. The Moors links us with the first trinity. In other words, we have a problem with the trinity in God's church in the last days, just before the close of probation. And God is warning Ezekiel so that we might wake up. Because we read earlier in Spirit Prophecy that the people are asleep and the time is passing. So Christ tells Ezekiel, make sure you take note of all that. Did you see all this? Now let's go to the next level, Ezekiel, because this is actually going to get worse. 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. Goes back in now. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun toward the east. Open sun worship in the Seventh-day Adventist church just before the close of probation, according to Ezekiel 8.16. Yes or no? Who would have thought? I would have never imagined that. I think every Seventh-day Adventist would not even enter into our minds that this is possible. But it was right, written right there, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, faithfully by Ezekiel. Why? Because God wants us to know that what is happening is not an accident, it's not a mistake, he knows what's taking place. And he wants us to know because he doesn't want us to be caught up in the deception. So now he sees the leaders of God's people. And a lot of people make issue of the number 25 and so on. 
I, I'm not going to go into that, but this, this is the church. These are the leaders, whether 25 or 100, it doesn't matter. The prophecy is representative of the whole. That's really what it's talking about. The leaders of God's people, openly now, no longer in the dark, in the secret, like Ezekiel saw, they're between the porch and the altar. They turn their back towards the temple and they look towards the east. And it was a sunrise worship service. And they worship the sun toward the east. Now, if you remember in the sanctuary, God told them to build the sanctuary to certain specifications. Not only that, but even the layout of the sanctuary had to be in position. The door of the sanctuary had to be on which side? The east side. And the most holy would be towards the, the west. Now, God did that for a reason. You know what the reason is? Because all the pagans would worship the sun, and they would look to the east, to the sunrise, to worship the sun. So God says, when you worship me, you don't do that. You turn your back to the east. And to enter in, you turn your back to the sun, and you worship that way. So when you come in, it's a sign that the sun is, is only the creation of this God. We worship this true God. So these men, he sees them in between the porch and the altar. They turn their back to the true God. They turn against that, and they look towards the east and they worshiped it says the sun toward the east sun worship now who would have thought sun worship we looked at sun worship last night we saw the origins of sun worship and how that's represented i'll just quickly do a revision for those who might have not been here uh, i'm not going to go through the whole thing sun worship remember it was in three stages sunrise midday and and sunset isn't that right and it was the three in one one in three god and they utilized this symbol the three disks of the sun, which we found out was called what? A trike, okay, very good. Some still remember. And this symbol, of course, was a symbol of the sun god. And we saw that God is not happy about this worship. He told his people in Numbers 33, 52 to destroy those pictures, the symbols of the sun god, sun worship. And so we see today a fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, this is a book called the Trinity. This is a modern-day book. This is not an ancient book. And we'll see where this book comes from in a minute. But you remember what Rome said? Catholic reasons for keeping Sunday because it's a day dedicated by the apostles in honor to the honor of the most holy Trinity. The day is connected to the God. Sun worship is based on the God of the sun. Sunday is nothing else but allegiance to the sun God. Now, this is quoted in the Adventist Review and, and Sabbath Hill in 1854. The pioneers used to use statements like this. We don't use these anymore. They're quoting this to show the falsehood of this type of worship. Not only the day is wrong, but the God is wrong. Now, we saw also other examples uh, of the Trinity and all the different pictures and all the different symbols. But this book here, there is a very uncanny resemblance to something else we saw last night. Isn't that right? You see any similarity there? You know, no comment, huh? Now remember, what is it? Now this is, this is what's happening in the church today. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Ezekiel wrote that we're reading just now. Ezekiel said, in the last days, before the close of probation, there will be open, public sun worship in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And right here before us, we see a fulfillment of that prophecy. Isn't that alarming? You know what that means? 
probation is about to close. Now we're going to see, we're going to look at, look at, the, at the day as well. And we saw yesterday that, uh, oh, when it comes to worship, we saw yesterday, this is what the leaders instruct the people. And I'm, I'm not doing this to, uh, <laughs> to uh, criticize anyone. We're just looking at what the prophecy says, brothers and sisters. This is, I didn't come up with this stuff. That's the prophecy. And all we're doing is seeing a fulfillment of the prophecy. Now notice carefully. The one that's the nature and character of the three persons of the Godhead raises the very useful question of prayer, praise, and worship. What about direct prayer to the Holy Spirit? While we have no clear example of or direct command to pray to the Spirit in Scripture, doing so does have in principle some implicit biblical support. And notice now the counsel from the leaders. It only seems logical that God's people can pray directly to and worship the Holy Spirit. Another God that provokes to jealousy. So these things are not beyond God's notice. God knew that this would happen. God warned his people that this would happen. And that's exactly what Rome says and Rome does. Remember we read this yesterday? We won't read the whole thing again. The Pope also prays to the Holy Spirit. So I want to ask you a question, brothers and sisters. How is it possible that God's people and the Antichrist in the last days end up worshiping the same God? That's what we're seeing in the symbols here, isn't there? If you can discern, if you can understand the symbols, how is that possible? That's the devil's work in deceiving God's people. Praise God for Ezekiel's prophecy. Praise God. The God has revealed this. God tells us, I know what's happening. Take note of what's happening here and here and here. The leaders are going to turn from me and they're going to worship the sun God. And they're going to take everyone with them. Except those who stay true and faithful. Those who realize what is taking place. What about Sunday? A lot of people say, well, sun worship is really Sunday. Well, here's a statement about Sunday as well. The Lord has a controversy with his professed people in these last days. Who's that? Sunday Adventists, right? In this controversy, men in responsible positions will take a course directly opposite to that pursued by Nehemiah. They will not only ignore and despise the Sabbath themselves, but they will try to keep it from others by burying it beneath the rubbish of custom and tradition. In churches and in large gatherings, in the open air, ministers will urge upon the people the necessity of keeping the first day of the week. That's a prophecy. That will be the ultimate fruit of sun worship. But that's not the only evidence for sun worship. It's not the day that matters as much as the God of the day. Sun worship is already here, as we've seen already. So Ezekiel's prophecy is quite alarming. <clears throat> Verse 17, 18. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? And I say to you, Have you seen what I shared with you now? Are you seeing this? Are you understanding what is taking place? That's what God is telling Ezekiel. Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. That's a proverbial expression, meaning they are insolent. They are unrepentant. They will not heed. Verse 18, therefore, I also will deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. 
Isn't that sad? Imagine that Christ is forced to come to a place and say, even though they cry in my ears, I, I can't hear them. Why? Because they are so engrossed and ingrained in this false system of worship that God cannot help them anymore. They refuse to be ashamed. Now, as I said, brothers and sisters, this is alarming for us because Ezekiel is seeing this information for us now. And so it is no distraction that all this controversy that is taking place right now among us is actually a fulfillment of this prophecy. There is a spiritual battle going on over this particular issue. There is a war between the sun god and the true god. And this war is taking place among God's people. That's what Ezekiel saw. And that's why it tells us in 1 Peter 4.17, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not, what shall the end of them be, sorry, of them that obey not the gospel of, of God? Judgment begins at the house of God. Now we saw what happened in Ezekiel chapter 8. There were four abominations. They were progressive. They were all linked. And the progression ended up in open sun worship. Isn't that right? You know, that's really hard to stomach. I don't know about you, I mean, this dawned on me, it was hard to believe. I said, no, 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 that's impossible. But it's not impossible. The evidence is right there. God, God's word doesn't fail. The Bible says scripture cannot be broken. And we need to be able to rightly understand the prophecy. How many people really understand what this prophecy is talking about? I put it to you. If you are a sun worshiper, you will have no clue what this prophecy means. How many times have you heard a sermon? When was the last time you heard a sermon about Ezekiel 8 and sun worship in the Adventist church? I bet you've never heard it. Why? Because the majority of people have been ensnared in this false sun worship. And God revealed that to Ezekiel. So now we go to the next chapter. This won't take us as long. Don't worry, we're almost done. But it's a sad study, really. It's not a happy study. You can imagine how Ezekiel felt seeing all this stuff. One thing after another, after another. Worse and worse and worse. And God says in the end, I can't hear their prayers. Even if they cry in my ears all day. I can't hear. What happens after that? He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lies toward the north. Interesting. From the place of deception comes destruction. Isn't that right? And every man has a weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with an writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar, where that public, open sun worship was taking place. Verse 3. The glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was, to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side, and the Lord said unto him, go through the midst of the city. That's what we started with. But now you have a context. Now you have a background of what is taking place just before this event transpires. Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. And set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. There are men and women that sigh and that cry. They understand what these abominations are. And they are praying to the true God to intervene. 
I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. If you don't understand the abominations in the midst thereof, can you receive this mark? Now listen carefully. Those who receive this mark must understand the abominations that are happening in the midst thereof. You know, most people don't think there are any abominations at all. The mark is reserved only for those who sigh and cry for the abomination. You can't sigh and cry for the abominations if you don't know what they are. Right or wrong? That's the qualification. These people are none other than the hundred and forty-four thousand. It's the same people who receive the seal of the living God in Revelation 7. Now we understand a little bit more what they need to know about the abominations that are taking place in the midst of Jerusalem. Not only do they need to know, but they need to be sighing and crying. So many of you here might sit here and say, oh, I'm glad I know. Our next question, are you sighing and crying? Those only receive the mark. Verse 5, and to the others he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. Brothers and sisters, this is about to take place. We're not there yet, praise God. But we're almost there. How many people can you and I reach before this destruction comes? That's really the burden of this message. You know, we all have brothers and sisters in the church, we know. If you sit down, I already heard some, talked to some of you, heard some of your testimonies and stories and what happened. It is sad. The devil is fighting hard. But don't give up. God has a people. And our purpose, our mission in sharing truth is to save people, not to condemn people. The purpose of this vision is not to condemn people, but is to save them from these abominations. That's really the purpose. They began with the ancient men before the house. Verse 7, he said unto them, defile the house. Sad words. Which house is this? God's house. Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. And it came to pass, while they were slaying them, and I was left, that I fell upon my face and cried and said, Ah, oh, Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel in thy pouring out of thy fury? Upon Jerusalem. Poor Ezekiel. Poor Ezekiel. One abomination after another. And then these destroying men with the weapons. And God says go and destroy. And Ezekiel is totally overwhelmed. And you know the fact that Ezekiel is overwhelmed here. Should be an insight for us as well. And that plea and that cry that he makes. Is our cry. Because we have to, we have to remember something. There is an Ezekiel in the prophecy. And who will play the part of Ezekiel in exposing these things and pleading for God's people as well? In other words, to Ezekiel, it seemed like everyone will be destroyed. Isn't that right? It says, Lord, will you destroy everyone? There's no one left. It seems everyone will be destroyed. Reminds us of Elijah, right? He thought he was the only one. And so it might seem like you're the only one maybe in your church, in your group, in your congregation, in your family who believe the truth and understand. But God has his people. God has his 7,000. He's overwhelmed. 
Then said he unto me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great. Here's how God feels about it. Exceeding great. And the land is full of blood and the city full of perverseness. For they say, the Lord hath forsaken the earth and the Lord seeth not. And as for me also, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their, their head. That's very serious stuff, brothers and sisters. You know, the true God is not to be trifled with. When His people have received the knowledge of Him, turn their back on that and worship the false God, there's nothing more that God can do. That's the intent here. The fact that these leaders turned from the true God to worship the false God means that they knew the truth and they turned from it. Isn't that right? And that's exactly what has happened in the church. That's why we read earlier all these quotes from the pioneers. There was a time when we as a people had the true God. But through secret influences that crept in unawares, the deception now has become public to the point that if you speak about it, people think there's something wrong with you. That's how bad it is. So that's what God says. I'll recompense their way upon their head. And behold, the man clothed with linen, which had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, that's the marking man, right? He reported the matter, saying, I have done as thou hast commanded me. He came back fairly quick. There was only one of him. There were five men with slaughter weapons. He finished his job before them. You know what that means? Not very many, huh? Not very many, only a few. And this event is the biblical 9-11, great, just as we, let's come back online in just a minute. This event really, when the, when the man with the writer's inkhorn returns, is none other than the event when the sealing work is it's finished. Yes, I'll just get that back up for a minute. Uh, okay, that's where we left off. And this event is the biblical 9-11. Now you will never forget this verse, right? Ezekiel 9-11. This is not a joke. This is serious in the Bible. Ezekiel 9-11. That's the last verse of the chapter. There's no more verses. It's the next chapter after that. Ezekiel 9.11 is the close of probation, when it's all over. So now you'll know where to take people. So 9.11, oh yeah, I know where that is. Easy to remember. But very solemn, very serious, brothers and sisters. That time is about to happen. We're not there yet, praise God. So my appeal to you in light of this is not only to know the abominations, but to do what we need to do, and that is to sigh and to cry. We have, we have a very, very fearful responsibility of revealing the truth to others. You know, it might be hard, it might be discouraging, you might get talked about, you might get ridiculed, but we're dealing with a life or death issue, brothers and sisters. And you know what the sad thing as well in this prophecy is? I don't want to miss that. You know, sometimes we, don't, we want to hope all things and wish for the best. But the sad thing in this prophecy is the leaders don't turn from worshiping the sun. 
destruction comes while that abomination is still taking place. It's only those few individuals who recognize and understand the abominations that get marked. Isn't that right? We see that in the prophet. Destruction comes while the last abomination is taking place. And God says, go through, mark the ones who have sighing and crying for the abominations, and destruction follows. This is a hard saying, I know. Who can hear it? That's the sad fact of the matter. That's what prophecy says. That's what the scripture says. It's not something we came up with. It's sad. But we are not at the end just yet. It's the same thing that happened with the Jewish nation. Realize that. Exactly the same thing. That's why we're told in the spirit of prophecy that we are repeating the history of that people. This is where we, we see all these elements. And I don't need to comment on every element in the prophecy. I think you can see all the connections. How all the falsehood came in. And this false mediator. And the false worship of the uh, counterfeit son of God. And the open son worship at the very, very end. So my appeal to you, I don't want to uh, discourage you. I want to encourage you. That God is moving upon the hearts of people. God is restoring his truth. And all those who are true and honest and who truly love the Lord will not be left in darkness. But we have a work to do. We have a mission. So I appeal to you. I plead with you to be among those who sigh and cry for the abominations that be done. And to sigh and cry on the behalf of your brethren, my brethren. That's our mission. Let's pray as we close together. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.